Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. When, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups, taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols, made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace, near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that the people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgrace those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learnt that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. 
for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honoured the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Many, many, tackle and pass in. This is what these words mean. Many means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tackle means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Great. Thank you, Scott, for uh, doing that. I've quite enjoyed um, having the, the chapters read out in full at the beginning of these kind of Daniel um, uh, series that we've been doing. It's not usual that we actually do that, I don't think, and um, I've really enjoyed actually spending that time. It's strange. It seems odd to read a whole chapter in a church. Why does that seem odd? <laughs> if anywhere to read a whole chapter of the Bible, surely it would be uh, in church. But there we go. Right, as that warms up. This is um, behind me, you'll see Rembrandt's um, picture, painting, um, of, of the scene that uh, Scott has just read out in Daniel 5. Um, let's do a little recap, just so that everybody's up to speed. I'll try and whiz through this really quickly, because otherwise the recaps are going to end up being longer by the time we get to the end of Daniel. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world um, at the time. Uh, he attacks Judea, Judah, and um, the southern part of Israel, and takes control, kills lots of people, and then takes some of the uh, young, bright things, um, and one of those being Daniel and his three friends, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, I always forget what their true names are, but there we go. And, um, and he basically wants to destroy their whole culture, everything about uh, what they know, everything about their gods, um, and indoctrinate them into a Babylonian way of doing things. Daniel um, is given a position within the palace, um, which we learn in, in Daniel 1. And then in, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, which Daniel is able to interpret. And Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of that, believes in the power of Daniel's God, but only goes as far as that. Then in, in chapter 3, we are introduced to the friends a little bit more, um, and they're thrown into a fiery furnace, um, and God saves them from that. And at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar believes in the power of their God. And then in Daniel 4, um, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream that Daniel interprets. It's not good news for him, and there's a bit of a summary in Daniel 5, actually, about him being cast into the wilderness. But after that, he then fully understands personally for the first time God's power. So it's gone from believing in God's power to knowing it truly and kind of owning that and, and starting to live that. 
And then there's kind of a jump in time, which is to Daniel 5. And there's this new guy, Belshazzar, that is in control. Um, Daniel's other name is Belteshazzar. Bear that in mind, um, because it's caused confusion to me when I was uh, looking through it. And it jumps between Belteshazzar and Belshazzar. Belteshazzar, Daniel. Belshazzar, the king. Oh, well, the ruler. There's still scholars um, chat about whether he's actually a king, whether he, his father was the king but in exile, and he was then put into this position of ruler. But essentially, he's ruling that kingdom. Sorry? Daniel, Daniel and the ruler. Daniel and the ruler. Let's do that. I don't know, now I've got a 30 centimeter ruler in my head. <laughs> Daniel and the ruler. Right, I can't get it out of my head now. So, we are here now. Belshazzar, the ruler, um, has this massive feast that he's put on. Um, and he says he invites a thousand nobles. Now, this might be quite crude maths to do, but the average wedding has 100 guests and costs £21,000. Crazy. Cheap wedding. <laughs> 100 guests, 21 grand. So, this is 990 because I couldn't be bothered to resize it all to get the extra 10 in. <laughs> 55 by 18. That's how many people he invited, roughly. Um, and so you're looking at £210,000. Very crude maths. I'm not sure whether we can actually do that. But there we go, just to put it into a bit of perspective. This is a very um, showy um, event. Um, he's going all out. He's just trying to prove how much money he has. Um, it's all about indulgence and, and fine wines. Um, and then he does this extra little bit, which is getting the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had previously taken from the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And like, there's, there's a, there's, I don't know whether we've all done some maybe slightly silly things with money and indulged ourselves a little bit, but then there's this extra little bit going quite far. When I, when I was thinking about Belshazzar's use of money, I was reminded of a guy called Mario Balotelli, a footballer who, um, I know the last time I spoke I used a football analogy, but it went down quite well, so I thought I'd stick with it. This guy, Mario Balotelli, a young man who gets paid an extortionate amount of money uh, to play football. Granted, he's, uh, he's pretty decent, he scored some goals. But he made headlines for doing some strange things with his money. The first of these um, was that he set off some fireworks in his own flat that he was renting at an extortionate amount. And uh, this is what his bathroom then looked like. Thankfully, nobody was actually injured. And then um, he was also sent by his mother, the story goes, to get an ironing board... And this is what he came back with. Um, but anyway, I kind of digress. But Belshazzar has more money than he knows what to do with, as does Mario Balotelli. Uh, and he buys some stupid things, and he spends his money on these 
um, extravagant things. And he's basically just making headlines. But this guy is in charge. Now, when I was um, reading through this over the last few weeks, there was so much of this passage that I could go into in like the history and all these different meanings. Um, but essentially, I just had these three quite simple thoughts that I'd like to share and just kind of leave with you. Um, and, and you can take it, leave it, or whatever it might be. Um, but there was so much I could have got really stuck into um, today. I just want to kind of try and keep it as simple as I can uh, for myself more than for anything else. Humility. So this first concept of humility, and it's something that I love about Daniel throughout the entire uh, book, um, is is how he shows his humbleness at every instance. And I think it's particularly pertinent here. In verse 17, he's offered the royal robes um, and the chain and the position um, if he's able to interpret these dreams. Uh, sorry, interpret the, the words. And he refuses them. Daniel's not about that. He doesn't hold himself high uh, because he's needed. So he's getting called upon by the ruler of Babylon. But he doesn't want anything that he can offer him at all. That's not why he's there. He doesn't... can I say it? He knows it's not about him, basically. He knows it's nothing that he does that means he can get these rewards. It's actually about God working through him. And he's, he's got that humility to know it's not about his skill set. It's not about his abilities or anything because of him. It's all about God working through him. And he serves God and that is the reason why he's then called upon. It's through serving God that he's given these opportunities to speak into Nebuchadnezzar's life, into Belshazzar's life. He's ready to do whatever God, uh, he's ready to do whatever is required for God to be shown in those situations, for God's will to be done. Humility is a characteristic that I desire. Um, Is that ironic already? Um, Above most others. The other one maybe is generosity. I'd like to be a little bit more generous. Um, And at different times I can exhibit humility and I can exhibit generosity. But I do struggle. The problem I have with humility or being humble is that I'm always right. Does Does anybody else feel like that? (laughs) Like the whole reason that you have an opinion is because you think you're right. Oh dear, Luke, you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) But does anybody else find other people's decision-making slightly strange? Why would you do it that way? Why have you done that? I would have done it such a different way. I've had my driving license for two and a half years now. Katie's had hers for eight. 
And I reckon I've covered roughly 100 miles in my car. Um, that's including the lessons. Because I just, I've not enjoyed it at all. I've had it and I've not, I've not really driven. I don't enjoy driving. And um, Katie, I reckon, probably covered 50,000 miles at a guess. Yet, she will do things and I'll go, what a strange decision. I would have done that very differently. <laughs> have I turned it off? Oh, the speaker's gone. Um, yeah, and I'll just think, why have you done it that way? In a strange way, I'm thinking I can do that better, yet there's no evidence to suggest that that's true at all. <laughs> but does anyone else do that? Where there's something inside that is stubborn... That means you are right even when the evidence suggests you might not be. Or am I just alone with that? <laughs> I've got this other um, phrase that I use quite often, which is back yourself. I always feel like I've got to back myself. And um, uh, if I tell myself I can do it, then I can. And it's got me through um, quite a few different challenges that I've set myself and I've managed to achieve them and I've felt good because of that. Um, I tried to do one charity event each year, um, and I've canoed at uh, the River Seven. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I backed myself. I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And I've got this game at home called uh, Challenge. I don't know if anybody else has played this. Is anybody familiar with it? No? But basically, there's lots of different items in it. Um, and it goes around... You'll pick up a card and will have an activity or something that you're supposed to achieve. And you will say that you can do that. Let's, for example, say, run from this side of the room to that side of the room uh, in 30 seconds. And it'll go around. Someone will say, oh, I reckon I could do that three times. And then it'll go around to somebody else and they'll say four times. And it'll come to me and I'll say, 20 I'll back myself. I reckon I can do that 20 times. And then the, the, the challenge is laid down, um, and you do it. This is me after winning the challenge. Um, full, of, full of... I know. It's an old picture. Uh, full of humility. But why am I saying this? Obviously, I'm kind of coming at it... Um, from a place of having fun, having a bit of a laugh. But actually, Daniel is an incredibly good role model, um, and he's, like, he's mastered this concept of, of humility, and it's fundamental to his character. And that, I think, is just something really desirable, something that I would love to, to be able to, to do too. And yeah, we can always have a bit of fun and back yourself at different times. I don't think we need to be ridiculously serious. But that, to have it as a fundamental aspect of our character, this idea of humility, is something that I think Daniel is a perfect role model for. He doesn't really care what's going to happen to him. He doesn't really care what other people think about him. He doesn't do anything. His actions that are written down in the Bible aren't there to protect himself, nor to further himself. All he does, time after time, is be ready to serve God, whatever that may take him. He does that humbly. 
walk, walking humbly with his God. The last few years, again, maybe it's marriage, but I'm getting better at having an open mind. I'm much happier with the concept of being wrong. I'm much more content. I know, yeah, she's done a great job. I'm much more content to change my opinions and, and develop and actually take things on board and listen and think uh, rather than simply doing what I think is right, having my opinion and not wavering at all. Now, it's not because I'm flaky, but it's because I'm trying to exercise humility. Even in everything that we believe, I think we've got to be open because otherwise there becomes an arrogance in our belief which means we'll never be able to communicate to anybody else. Even the fundamentals of our faith, if we all we do is just go, no, you're wrong, I'm right, and we don't do it with humility, it will prevent us from being able to get the amazing message that Jesus is across. Humility is not self-pity or self-degradation, however. I think sometimes we misunderstand true humility, or at least I do. But there's this interesting bit in in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. uh, And it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Who wrote Numbers? (laughs) Moses. And he says, Now Moses was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And if I were to stay here and say, I am the most humble man in London, you would think by saying that I've already disproved it. Yet, Moses' life, like Daniel's, just continuously proves his humbleness, the way that he goes about life. So how can he say that and remain humble? I think it is possible. Moses never thinks about himself. Self-pity or self-degradation, nor self-indulgent or self-righteous, even after saying that. They all have self in them, and Moses doesn't think about self at all. He just thinks about God, and then the humility follows and flows from that. So that's my, one, my first kind of thought um, that I kind of got from this passage. This idea of humility is actually just seeking God above all else, not thinking about self. And that might mean that there's times when you're right and you can say that, but you do it humbly. There's a difference between just always putting yourself behind and actually being able to, um, I think Sam was saying it last week actually, about keeping people accountable and, and the church petitioning people in authority and different aspects like that, but coming at it from a humble heart. Let's need a quick drink. Ooh. My second uh, thought is... Oh. God is big and sovereign. 
I get really nervous before I speak, and I've done it a few times now, and I still get ridiculously nervous. Um, but I'm always reminded to think, am I concerned about what you guys think of me, or am I concerned about what God thinks in this next 30 minutes? <laughs> there's definitely, I can't deny, there's definitely an element of me that no matter how much I try, I'm concerned about what you guys will think. That, <laughs> cheers, Nudge. Um, but I, I'm trying to get more about, actually, it's not about what you guys think at all. It's always about what God will think of me. And I feel like, I'm talking to myself certainly, but maybe I don't want to presume anything. But I feel like there is a lack of reverent fear within the church generally. Just really knowing the true character of God. And in modern Christianity, we, um, we kind of fear man quite a lot. And modern preachers worry about what people will think. Um, and within the church, we're judged by how many numbers are in a congregation, um, what other churches might think, rather than the truth of preaching. We fear man more than God quite often, and I'm guilty of that. And I'm brought to this passage in Isaiah 6. I haven't got it up there, but I'm just going to read part of it. Verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the, doors, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This God is so holy, so far beyond us, that even the angels are not worthy to look upon God. They cover their face with two wings. They cover their feet with two, and they're left with two to fly with. And everything in that scenario shakes at their voices. They are impressive beings themselves that are shaking the core of of that environment. Yet they can't look upon God because he's so set apart and he's so holy. Then Isaiah says, verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. His first reaction is, he's just so aware of the sin, he's so aware of what he said, his unclean lips, he's so aware of the environment that he's come from, he's lived with people with unclean lips, and he's thinking, I am going to die. I cannot be sustained in this environment. Woe is me. I'm going to be ruined. The holiness of God is so immense that that was what Isaiah was thinking. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Grace. This is what Jesus is to us. Before God, all he was aware of was his sinfulness. But he admitted that sinfulness, accepted God's grace. And that's what we're called to do too, really, with Jesus. And then verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. After Isaiah's revelation, God asked that question, who will I send? And he cannot do anything but volunteer. I saw God. I know who I serve. I have to go. I don't know about you, but sometimes, again, not being very humble, I'm thinking, God's made some mistakes. I'm like, I wouldn't have done it that way. Why did he choose to do that? Why has he let that happen? Am I just the only one that maybe has those little <laughs> questions and think, God, I think you've made a mistake on that. I've only lived on this earth 28 years, but I feel like some things that you could have done differently. But when I see God like that description in Isaiah 6 and appreciate his power and his sovereignty and the real significance, the real immenseness, is that a word, the gift that Jesus' death actually is and I realize that God can do whatever he wants but I trust he is a just God rules with love and relationship as his motivation. But if he wants to show up at the ruler's party and write mene mene tekel parson on the wall without an invite, he can do just that. No matter who we are, no matter what position we might have here, whether we're CEOs of our own organizations or whatever it might be, whether you're Mario Balotelli earning lots of money. It doesn't matter what company we have or who we rub shoulders with. We are subject to God. Now, that might sound like an oppressive ruler, but actually, I think that brings an incredible freedom to know that. In fact, it's the greatest of freedoms. When I'm able to fully appreciate the greatness of my God, through the fear of God, I can fully realize that nothing is impossible. Yeah? I fully appreciate what Jesus did for me in a new way when I think about who God is, the real mighty holiness of him. I fully understand the gospel and the importance of the teachings that Christ gave us. I've got to understand the fear of God to appreciate the grace of God. Grace without context is not grace at all, is what I've learned. 
And I feel like actually that revelation is um, particularly pertinent today when we're thinking about Remembrance Sunday and the massive loss of life through war over... It's just continuous. There's hardly a day of, uh, of peace in generations and generations. We may not understand why God allows these things to happen, but I know that God is bigger than death itself and that he invented grace and designed love. So that's my second little thought. Thankfully, the last one is the shortest. Whose counsel do you seek? <laughs> I, um, I find it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar didn't learn through all the examples to go to seek Daniel and his counsel first. <laughs> they continually go to their own astrologers they go to their earthly wisdom. They go to their diviners. And then they go to Daniel. And he seems to always come true for them. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, even though Daniel has that proven track record, they seek other people first. And one of the bits I actually found interesting was that the queen, or the queen mother, is always some debate as to exactly what position she had, seems to think of Daniel first. Her first port of call was Daniel. I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, I heard somebody say potentially she also had the spirit of God within her to recognize that in Daniel and know actually the only way to go is to seek God in this. I'm not sure. I don't know. But for us, are there times when we seek earthly wisdom to solve things or to negotiate difficulties and even good things before we seek our God? I certainly do. And going back to that Isaiah 6 description, when we are seeking God, when we're praying... That's who we're communicating with. That immense, incredible, holy being. And I don't know whether that changes the way that we might petition God. That might change the way that we interact with him. To understand that yes, he is friend of sinner. Yes, he is love and incredibly approachable. But at the same time, you see him face to face and you think, woe is me. It changes the way that I've prayed recently knowing that that's who I'm trying to get into communication with but yeah so my little summary is those three thoughts from Daniel 5 we have to stay humble in everything that we do and the best way to do that is to only have eyes on God when we know that everything comes from him then everything else is put into perspective and to remember, humility isn't simply putting yourself down. <laughs> That's not humility.
but it's focusing on God. Second, God is big. When we're praying, we're interacting with that God of Isaiah 6. That he can turn up to the biggest party unannounced and right on the wall and make the king shake and his knees knock together. And then lastly, the idea that let's think about who is it that we're actually seeking advice from. Do we go around the houses and read all these different books before we seek God? And are there like Daniels in our lives that are just in tune with the Spirit in a way that when we're down, they're able to really support us because they're able to communicate things from God? Just three thoughts. I know the previous chapters we've been looking into might have been slightly more about the word itself and the history behind it. But I just kind of felt that they were the three things that I wanted to share today. Um, and I hope that that's been useful for you guys. I'm just going to pray for us and then hand back to you, Nigel. Yeah, Lord God, we just thank you that you are so holy. We thank you that you are magnificent, that you are all-powerful, you are almighty. And Lord God, I just pray that we will just gain a real appreciation this week going forward of that. And Lord God, we just then thank you so much for what Jesus accomplished, what that really means for us. That is astounding. And Lord God, we just pray that, particularly in the context of modern life with the American elections, with Remembrance Sunday, with all of the conflict going on around the world, God, that we would just know you ourselves and be able to communicate that love to everybody around us through actions and deeds and words. And Lord God, we just pray that you would just raise up um, people... Well, actually, now I'm going to pray for everybody to be a Daniel in that they will be able to be there for whoever needs advice or counsel, um, Lord God, because you are living through us and that we will bring your wisdom into every situation that we are in.